So this morning, it's a good morning. It's October 1st, 2017. We've got good things planned for you today. Before I even get into that, though, I wrote down a couple words that I think described the worship service today. I was overwhelmed. Anybody in here was overwhelmed by the presence of God? I love the way that he rushes in during times of need. I'm filled with hope. I hope before you leave here today, you'll be filled with hope. I actually believe that the God of the universe is working in the lives of the people in this room. Now, a lot of you have known me for a lot of years. I don't say that to people if I don't think God's at work in their life. I don't have any problem walking right up to somebody and saying, you're destined for hell. It doesn't even make me sweat or flinch a little bit. And this morning, what I feel in here is that you have reason for hope. I felt God's faithfulness to his people in times of need this morning. I felt that during worship. But most of all, you know what word I feel? Victory. The enemy can rain down upon that house built on the rock, but I'm still standing on the rock. Are you? I know that you are. I want to read you something. Our title today, by the way, is After the Flood. I want to start with you in Psalm 40 and then tell you why we're talking about after the flood on the day after atonement. Psalm 40, familiar scripture, beginning in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. What does it mean that God will hear the cry of a man? Hear the cry of a woman? Are you hurt today? Is there an unfulfilled promise in your life? Something that when it comes up, it causes you to wince a little bit. It's painful. God hears your cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. Say, man, I'm getting out of it. I'm getting out of it. Look, I don't want to dwell in the slime, but I've been there, haven't you? I've been there more than I wanted to be. I've been there when I promised I wouldn't be. The slime is a slippery slope. Sometimes you get in it and you cannot figure out how to get out of it. Isn't it true? He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Before we leave here today, every foot in this room will be clean and standing on a rock if you want it. And I believe the vast majority of you want it. I want to stand on the ground that is higher than I. No more low living for this pastor. No more backing up, shutting up, or letting up. We're moving forward in the Lord. And the more adversity that comes our way, the more determined I'm going to be. I can look at the smiles on your faces and tell that you are not beaten, not by a long shot. Oh, it's good, isn't it? It's good to know that you have a heavenly advocate. On the Hebrew calendar, today is the 11th of Tishri. It's the year 5,778. Yom Kippur ended yesterday at sunset. If you were here on a Wednesday night, you probably will understand when I say even the Benonim have had to pick their side. Nobody ought to be left in the middle on the day after atonement. You're either atoned for or you're not. I want to share an unusual message with you tonight. Pastor Wade... Wednesday is going to share with you a little bit about tabernacles, Sukkot, and maybe even its relationship to Yom Kippur and the rest of the world. It's going to be an amazing thing. 
Today I want to do something that's uncharacteristic of this ministry. We usually talk a great deal about the work that comes from faith. Today we're going to take a little different twist on that that is scriptural based on the day after atonement. Get to Exodus 15 with me. As I was walking to the stage today, a brother came to share a word that he was going to give during the service. And it was Exodus 15, beginning in verse 1, which is our text today and was the song that we were singing. That's awesome, isn't it? There are people that can make up the leading of the Holy Ghost, but you cannot make up the confirmations that show you you're being led by the Holy Ghost. Are you in Exodus 15, 1? Are all of you in Exodus 15, 1? There we go. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. Man, what an interesting topic that is. Dead bodies everywhere, and what are the Israelites doing? You ever read the book of Revelation? Dead bodies everywhere and the heavens are still praising the Lord because His judgments are just and true and everything that He does is right. I will sing to the Lord for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become, say He has become, become. my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. I am so glad that the Lord is not a cotton candy or a dandelion or a metrosexual. I'm thrilled to death that holy masculinity is something that defines the Lord because the building blocks of the family that are being destroyed in this country, being destroyed in the church, are, are being able to be removed because men have stopped being the priest in their homes. And in this church, we are learning how to be priest in our own home first. We're starting with our youngest disciples and we're moving forward. The Lord is a warrior. He fights for His children. He fights for the family of God. And as men of God, we will do the same. And we'll do it with the sword of the Lord, which is... His word. Amen? Amen. In this passage, which I think you recognize are the lyrics of the song that Matthew was singing, the phrase, He has become my salvation, ought to pop off the page to you. Consider what has happened prior to this that they're saying this. The Israelites took up no arms and they fought no battles. And yet they stood on the other side of the Red Sea delivered and saved come on now how many times you've been in a situation and you've exhausted yourself trying to fix it and you can't even your best efforts seem to make it worse that can be true in relationships that can be true in occupations that can be true in so many things your very best efforts don't do anything but delay god's salvation sometimes they were hopelessly pinned in against the sea and the armies of Pharaoh. You know, we know how this story ends, and so we read it differently. But remember, they're staring at the world's most formidable army. They're staring at the highest military technology of their day. And on the other side of them is an impassable ocean. Even when you think about the fact that the Lord split it, and they could see the Lord split it, 
They had to walk through it with walls of water on their right and left, not knowing at what moment those walls would give way. You're beginning to get the impression that the Christian life has always been the same. Danger, hardship, persecutions on every side. Trembling and yet somehow inwardly confident. Learning to trust in something that is unseen. Not seeing his footprints as Psalm 78 said, but looking backwards and knowing they were there. Oh, come on, saints. Are you traveling through perilous waters? Can you imagine how the human instinct for survival fought against being in this position? Man, have you ever seen a group of people when a mouse enters the room? 250-pound man will hop on top of a desk to get away from a four-and-a-half-ounce rodent. The instinct for self-preservation had to be as strong in them as it is in you. And yet they were compelled to move forward. What caused that kind of self-denial? The very sea that the Israelites marched into, which must have seemed like certain death, was the sea that ultimately freed them from their slave masters. Consider this for a minute. The perilous waters that you face in your life right now might be actually the thing that is going to free you of your problem on the other side. It was the biggest obstacle they could possibly face until they went through it and that obstacle fell on their enemies. Sometimes what the devil meant to kill you, God will use to save you and put an end to him. That's a good word. Man, we could stop right there. How many giants are you facing that his head's going to end up a trophy on your mantle and you just don't know it yet? That day that they were freed from their slave masters, that day that their biggest obstacle as they walked through became the death trap for their enemy, they said, He has become my salvation. God became their Savior that day. Oh, man. Is He the Savior of of the majority of your life? But there's this area that it just doesn't feel like He's delivered you in yet. Is He the Savior of almost everything? But there's this one thing you just don't want to talk about that much because it's humbling and it hurts and you need the mercy of God because you just haven't seen victory in it yet. Well, when you stand on the other side of it, He'll be your Savior of that area too. Can I tell you, He's going to save you fully, wholly, in every possible way. There is no area of your anger that He will not conquer. There is no area of your lust that He will not put underfoot. There is no thing that faces you, not depression, not anything, that He will not save you from. Oh, how could we not be happy in the house of God about that? It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of endurance and and persevering. If you stand with Him, He will stand with you until every enemy in the heavens and on the earth are under His feet and you are His feet. May the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. It's Romans 16, 20. See, He's going to reign until He puts every enemy under His foot And you are that foot. 
Oh man, what faces you, Christian? What stands outside your, wa your walls and says, I'm going to breach the wall and overwhelm you? What is there stalking you at night and stalking you during the day? Because you know what? Its days are numbered. Is loneliness beating you up? The Holy Ghost will fill you and you will have a friend that is closer than a brother. Is depression trying to overwhelm you? We can lift up our hands to the very throne of God and receive the joy that will not spoil, perish, or fade. We have reason for hope in the house of God today. Do you have reason for hope? Yes. There are people in the theological world who say that Israel was only speaking of a temporal salvation. In other words, the salvation that they're talking about is simply from the Egyptians. If that is true, then slide your finger down in Exodus 15 to the 13th verse and tell me what this means. In your unfailing love, what kind of love? Unfailing. Oh, come on, look at your neighbor and say, God's love won't fail me. Oh, look, you just said it. It just came out of your mouth. You might need to dwell on that for a minute. Don't act like God's love is going to fail you. His love will not fail. Fail you. He delivered all Israel. Can I tell you? Not all of them were uh, A students. In fact, only two of this group makes it into the promised land, but that did not stop him from delivering them. He will deliver you to the King James uttermost, which obviously is the last utter on a cow. In your unfailing love, I could pick on King Jimmy all day long. You should read. Yeah, my wife's giving me the note. There's a whole conversation to be had about stones, you know. Exodus 15, 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength. Whose strength? In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. What an incredible concept. When he led them out of Egypt, they thought they were going to the promised land. But he says he's leading them to his holy dwelling. Can I tell you, you have an earthly destination, but you also have a heavenly destination. And the two are going to meet in a place called there. There is a time period where when you are in the place he called you to be on the earth... Heaven is going to answer you and it will be the day you see your enemies fall. The last one to be put, put down is death. Oh man, I long for that day. Do you? Yes. The Torah does not teach salvation by works or works of the law. That's a misconception that preachers from yesteryear gave us and today's theologically shallow world just hasn't challenged it. They would rather read bumper stickers and t-shirts and derive their theology that way. If you look at the Torah, you're going to see amazing things. In Exodus 15, it's prior to the Sinaitic experience. In other words, we don't have the law given from Sinai. So here we have a workless, not worthless, but workless, labor-free salvation. And it's totally dependent on something. The love and faithfulness of Yahweh God. He wasn't saving them because they kept the law. They did not have the law to keep yet. Why was he saving them? Because he loves them. And he's faithful to his word. Was it based on their strength? No, he specifically only mentions his strength. 
That ought to be good news for those of you that feel like you don't have what it takes. How many of you feel like you don't have what it takes? See, every hand in the room ought to go up or you have another kind of problem. You believe that you can save yourself. Can I tell you a little time and experience will teach you that's not true? I'm saved, filled with the Holy Ghost, totally in love with the Lord, and I cannot, I, I won't tell you how many times I fall on my face. Give my wife after the service. She'll enumerate a few for you. But I got to tell you, the Department of Public Transportation this week has seen a few. Anybody in here work for the DPS? All right, so whoever watches online that works for the DPS, they can send me hate mail. I have never found a lower level of human intelligence than at the DPS. Never. It's very, very special. And I've traveled all over the globe. I've been in more than 30 countries. I've seen some backwards, amazing things. And the DPS is special beyond anything I've ever seen. But the biggest fool in the DPS was me. I got angry. Can I tell you when you're angry, it drops your IQ? I spoke some faithless words. It seemed that to fix a very bad situation, I was going to fix it by making it much worse. Oh, man. Sometimes trying to work out salvation for yourself or someone you love only shows that you've made things much worse. The prophets speak about the salvation of God in the same way that Exodus does. Turn with me to, Exodus, to Isaiah 12. Say there when you were there. After a near-death experience in an intersection and a stop sign that a teenager thought was optional which happened to be in front of a county courthouse and an entire fleet of police cruisers on the way to a driving test. I expressed some things that are not God's thoughts on the subject. And then the shame and the guilt from that expression caused me to double down on my bad behavior. You ever done that? You've been in the slimy ground and moved straight from the slimy ground to the mud? And if you didn't know what the difference between mud was and mire, you found out. <laughs> Mud's easier to get out of than mire. You can, listen, say sometimes. Actually, I told you to go to Isaiah. Keep your finger in Isaiah. Go to Psalm 37. In Psalm 37. Slide your finger to verse, I might have put on my glasses. Ten. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. That sounds good, doesn't it? It's right up there with verse one. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of wrongdoing. But what if you're the wicked man? What if you're the evil man you need to get away from? Do not fret. He says, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. What if the problem is you're the wicked man in the moment? What, you've never been there? 
You're called to give the fresh water of the word and you found a salty dog coming right out of your mouth? Sometimes you just got to stop. Say, look, look. Practice it with me. Say, stop. stop. Just, just stop. You know what I'm saying? Like, stop. Simmer down. It's going to be okay. God's still enthroned. It's, it's not the end of the world. Sometimes things are going wrong and we, we go with them. You, you know? Sometimes the things going wrong started with you. The Lord has been saving people just like you a long time. Just like me a long time. I got to tell you, I am amazed at what the Lord can do through me. I, I stand in awe of that. I'm not ashamed to say that. It blesses me to no end. But I'm more amazed at what I can do that He didn't tell me and that is wrong. The fact that He can save me out of that is extraordinary. It's always been this way. Look at how Isaiah 12 puts it. You back in Isaiah 12? In Isaiah 12, beginning in verse 1, In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Come on, you may have justly deserved the anger of God, but it doesn't last forever. Joy comes in the morning. It, it can change. You, you ever had one of those despairing, hopeless fights with your spouse? Anybody? I haven't, so I just wanted to be able to counsel you. Oh, man, there is no... The distance between two people on a queen-size mattress can feel like it is a thousand miles at times. And if it's a king size, it's even bigger. <laughs> the married men are like smiling and, and trying to glance in the peripheral to see if their wife thinks this is funny or not, or whether their business is about to become public. You know, like, did you call pastor this week? No, I'm talking about me. The good news is, on the Day of Atonement, the Lord comforted His people. See... The thing is, is he wants to save you, not kill you. And it had been a whole lot easier to kill you than save you. I mean, that was really my issue outside the DPS. I wanted to kill somebody and God called me to teach them. You know, it would be a whole lot easier to kill them. But that was never the goal. And, and the part that makes that the funniest is why do you want to kill them? Because you're having a hard time teaching them. You, you, you know? No, you don't know. Anybody got teenagers in this room? What's wrong with y'all? You ever tried to teach somebody to drive a standard? Hey, man. Yeah, I taught some people in this room how to drive a standard. Look, while I have taken this, uh, whether it's wise or not, rabbit trail, let me just say, <clears throat> I have a 16-year-old son who now has a driver's license. He parallel parked that thing in two smooth, fluid motions while trying to charm the girl who was giving him the driving test. It was, uh, it was something to be seen. I think she blushed a little bit when he blew that horn. His horn makes an uh, ooga sound. You know, it's not a normal horn. 
It was beautiful. I mean, it, it, it was. Had she been standing outside 25 minutes earlier, she would have seen us break nearly every traffic law that there is. <laughs> you ready for the convicting moment? <laughs> kind of like if we saw you 25 minutes before or after church some Sundays. You know how it is. Sometimes we do better in the congregation of the saints than the isolation of ourselves. I need my brothers. My brothers need me. I will praise you, O Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, praise God, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Do you hear that same exact language that you heard in Exodus 15? Now, you can't highlight in the Hebrew text. You can't bold in the Hebrew text. So if you want to emphasize something, the only thing available to you is to repeat it. The Lord, the Lord is my strength. Oh, man, you don't have any of your own. It's incredible how weak human beings are. I, as a pastor, sometimes it's pretty easy to get skeptical of people. As soon as you tell me I'll be with you forever, I know it's your last Sunday. You know? I mean, I know that. When somebody says they have an impressive offering and I say put it with all of the others, I know the check's going to bounce. You know? I mean, we know how this works. We've been doing it a long, long time. Unfortunately, as much as I know how it works, I'm not able to stop it from working the exact same sinful way in me. Maybe that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 7, you know? Where he says, hey, the good I want to do is not what I do. No, the evil that I don't want to do, it's, it's always right there with me. I don't preach like this much. I don't want to give anybody an excuse to sin. But I want to tell you the truth. If you are leaning on your strength, man, you, you don't have a shot. Not even, how many times have you promised to not deliver how many times have you taken your stand only to be crumpled into a little bowl? Your own history are to teach you that's true. You know what? It was no different in, in, in the Tanakh. It was no different. Uh, during the time period the Torah was given, they still had to trust completely in the Lord for salvation. During the time period of the prophets, you hear him. You have become my salvation. He acknowledges a sincere reckoning with sin in this passage. He says, although you were angry with me. Why is God angry with anybody? Because of sin. He recognizes his sinful position. But something turned the Lord's anger away. Oh, happy day, right? How good is it when anger is turned away? There's an absence of human strength in this passage. In fact, the Lord, the Lord is my strength. We're learning salvation based on the strength, goodness, faithfulness of the Lord, not salvation based on our strength and faithfulness. He has become my salvation. What good words that is. You know, the day after the Day of Atonement, to say He has become my salvation... How good does that feel? You know, think about the day before the Day of Atonement. You've been contemplating for 10 days. You're every failure. 
You're every failure of God, to God. You're every failure to your family. You're every failure to your children. You're every failure to your employer, to your fellow man. Can you imagine that you could skydive off of a dime on the ninth day of Tishri? But on the tenth day of Tishri, how would you feel that God had saved you anyway? Oh, man. See, that's the walk of a Christian right there. He saved you anyway. The Ketuvim or the Psalms, the writings portion of the Tanakh, it's replete with these same kind of themes. It always separates um, the love of the law from salvation. Listen in Psalm 119, verse 166. Don't you love that you can have a psalm that's that long? You know? I'm just going to read a chapter. Okay, read that one. A couple times. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and... Say, and... I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. Do you hear how they're separate things all together? You follow the commands because He saved you. (laughs) You do it because you love Him. You do it because it's the right way to live. But that is not salvation. Salvation was when you were breaking all of the commands. Salvation was at your weakest, most powerless moment and it continues in every weak and powerless moment now you're awful quiet but i have to think that's good news for you yes. am i the only one that had a difficult week no. man it's easy to get disappointed sometimes with people isn't it you don't have to be at the dps to get disappointed with people you find a sheep with canine teeth and it hurts your feelings right it, it's easy to get disappointed with people It might be easiest to get disappointed with yourself. After all, you know yourself the best, right? Psalm 119, verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my... Listen, the law is the right way to live. It's the constitution of Israel, but salvation was something else. Now, I don't probably... I, I, I don't have to emphasize that a great deal here. I wrote about it in 2004 or 5. We teach this uh, a great deal. The misapplication of the law is being addressed in the Newer Testament. But it is not the way that God taught the law. The law was the right way to live. The law is the constitution of Israel. And it's beautiful. It is and was beautiful. It displays the superior moral character of God through Israel to the whole world around them. Yet while they were holding the law in their hands, while they were possessing the law, they were waiting for and longing for salvation. You know, this ought to remind you of something. You're holding the Word of God in your hands. It's perfect. In possessing it, though, that's not salvation, is it? We say, well, if you do it, that's salvation. Yes, but who can actually do it all? There's only been one. So what are you really doing? You're loving the Word of God. You're delighting in it. You're being instructed by it. But you are very much waiting for God to complete the salvation process in you. Oh, no, 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 Pastor, I was saved. Well, amen, I was saved too, but I'm also being saved. And I will need to be saved in the future. Not, Not just from the presence of moral decay, even physical decay. I used to have a full head of hair gone 
I didn't actually lose hair. Y'all don't feel bad for me. It just relocated to my shoulders. <laughs> the issue here is not about the moral perfection of man. It's about the faithfulness and love of our God to a people who are striving for Him. The correct biblical view has always been salvation as an unmerited gift from God to those who trust in Him during their difficulties. The most important thing that you can do is deny your own lordship in favor of His. In other words, as soon as you stop making decisions and start asking Him to make the decisions, as soon as you stop working for your own benefit and ask Him what you should be doing, this is the beginning of a walk with God. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh man, are you in that process? Yes. If you're not, I'm hoping to challenge you to be there. But my sense is that many people in the room are desperately in love with the Lord and trying to not get discouraged by the speed bumps, potholes, trials and tribulations they're experiencing along the way. See, when you're really in a battle, it's really a battle. Turns out it's hard. It's a lot different to stop and, and talk about one on a chalkboard than to live through them. These trials can be difficult. Check out Psalm 37, verse 39. Amen. Two guys are there. Where are the rest of you? Spence, you with me? Amen. The salva Psalm 37, verse 39. The salvation of the righteous comes from... He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in them. Why are the righteous saved? Because they take refuge in Him. In Him. And not even in one other thing. Listen... The law of the prophets and the writings, the entire Tanakh, advocates a salvation that is by the grace of God, a salvation that is by faith alone. There are not two systems. There are not multiple dispensations. There has always been one God who had mercy on people who took refuge in Him. Are you taking refuge in Him? You know, the religious people of Jesus' day were so upset how can he hang out with whores and tax collectors? How can he be in those places with those people if he knew what kind of woman were touching him, they said. What they were missing is those people ran to take refuge in him. And he likes to save the people who are running to take refuge in him. He does not save the ones that have taken refuge in their own ideas, their own arm, and their own systems. Are you taking refuge in him? See, the day after the Day of Atonement is a day when you ought to be standing in the fortress of God. You ought to feel on top of the entire world. Because whatever was wrong, whatever you've done, whatever was overcoming you, at this moment, you've been kissed from the heavens. What a good feeling. Before we leave the Psalms, uh, this is one to mark, right? You, you following me here? This is one that you want to put a box around. You might make a note in the front of your Bible because you're not going to meet one preacher in a thousand that understands this. You ready? Yeah. Psalm 50 and verse 23. He who sacrifices thank offerings 
honors me. And he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. What is the purpose of the sacrificial system? Why go through the issue on Yom Kippur? Why offer sacrifices of any kind? Well, it honors the Lord, that number one. And number two, the one who is making the sacrifice prepares the way so that God may show him the salvation of God. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? The sacrifices prepare the way so that God may show the, the participant the salvation of God. Think about the act of bringing... Oh, let's, let's make it... Who's got a favorite pet in here? Where you at, Joyce? Joyce. Cowboy still living? Matt? What's your dog's name? Kolev. Kolev still alive and doing well? Yes. Yes. Cassidy, is, uh, is Kolev the favored son in the Piro household these days? Yeah. Yeah. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You take something that you love, something that's innocent. How much self-will is in the animal's sacrifice? <laughs> the animal's not desiring to get up there and get its neck broken or its throat cut, is it? How helpless is the animal. How alive to its own ambitions and dreams is the sacrificial animal. See, can you hear the call of the Spirit telling you to empty yourself, to deflate yourself, to deny yourself, that the call of Christ is to die, that you might actually live? See, if you actually had to walk through sacrificing an animal and you walked away from that knowing about the faithfulness and love of the Lord, it would not be costless, would it? It was free for you, but it cost that animal everything, huh? You know, the cross is so much like that. It's free. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. But it costs you everything. It's the end of your ambition. It's the end of your dream. It's the end of any plan that you ever had, any self-effort that you ever had. Now, because he saves you, you want to work for him. In fact, it's the beginning of all godly effort you'll ever have. You're... Love will cause you to labor. Your uh, faith will prompt you to work. I mean, I'm not saying that we're not busy. That's another denomination and doctrine. What I'm saying is that you can't save yourself, can you? We kind of know that theologically. I am sure that's not a surprise to anybody in the room. But what situations are you trying to save yourself from now? And the most frustrating ones are the ones that you just... If they would just... If, if this just could... But you can't control their behavior, can you? You can't do anything about it. You have to wait on the Lord. It's as if the Holy Ghost is saying, just, just, just stop. Stop. If you give me a chance, I'll bring you a spouse. I'll give you what I've promised you. You just stop. You know, it's incredible. I was mad enough to kill my second-born son. And uh, I wanted to burn down the entire Department of Transportation for Texas. And when the Lord worked it out anyway, 
I was just overwhelmed with gratefulness because I knew he didn't deserve it. I knew I didn't deserve it. And it was just a loving God who met us in our hour of need. Oh, come on. How many times do you get saved? Well, you might get saved theologically once, but I think you get saved many times every day. Is there a situation right now you just need him to help you with? Can you let go of all effort and ambition in that situation and say, I'm going to trust the Lord? Look, you're going to have to enter the sea of your death in order to experience the revelation that is in fact the sea of your deliverance. To deliver you from slavery. It'll be the salvation of your soul. There are things you can't control that you're not supposed to. That's what makes him God and you the worshiper. You might have to get on the altar and lose your will, lose even your life so that you can find God's will in the life of God. <laughs> if you live with somebody as difficult as me, you might have to do it many times a day. Look, it is difficult, this human experience, isn't it? But did you feel how the Lord rushed in here during worship to help us? Do you feel how close he is to us when we call out to him? And he's a warrior. He's a warrior. He is fighting the battle that you cannot fight. And you might be in his firing line and in his way by trying to fight it. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes you're just going to have to stop. I marvel at the wisdom of our God. His love and his faithfulness as our only means of salvation means that there's not a person in this room that can boast. That's in it. It doesn't mean that you won't means that you shouldn't, right? Turn with me to Proverbs 16 and verse 6. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. How is sin atoned for? So we could preach on Yom Kippur all day long and tell you that one goat that dies and one goat that lives makes atonement, but that's less than half the story. Love and faithfulness is what atones for sin. Those goats dying and one being left alive, that just prepared the way for the Lord to teach you about His salvation. That just showed you a manner in which salvation would occur. Does that make sense? In other words, it was meant to lead you to Christ. Now, before you get all off in hypothetical land, let's talk about some of the things that the Lord does. Because the primary feeling that I want to leave you with this morning has to do with love and faithfulness of God and how we should be contemplating it the day after the Day of Atonement, the day after the flood of the Red Sea. See, you know love and faithfulness atone for them at the Red Sea when they're standing on the bank on the other side. Don't you? I mean, it wasn't their arm. Go to, with me to Leviticus 23. And we're going to get into the meat of what we have to share and make quick work of it today. You all right, Emmy? Not getting too long for you, huh? Okay. You're a little bit cold? Fat people like me, we're hot. So skinny, pretty little girls like you got to wear sweaters. 
And if you're a fat guy wearing a sweater, you're just going to be uncomfortable in the house of God today. <laughs> Leviticus 23, 26. The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month, that was yesterday, is the day of atonement. Hold the sacred assembly and deny yourselves. Present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day because it is a day of atonement. Before we go any further, do you hear self-denial and the inability to work in the first sentence? The day is not about the slaughtering of a goat. That, that is a teaching tool. That, that was to uh, make a way for you to understand and the Lord to show you His salvation. The day was to teach you how to deny yourself how to refrain from working. How is sin atoned for? It's love and faithfulness. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Let's keep going with this. Do not work on that day because it is a day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God, anyone who does not deny himself on that day must be cut off from his people. I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you. What does rest mean? No work. And you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the evening, I'm sorry, until the following evening you are to observe a Sabbath. Now, I don't want to bog you down in monotony this morning. It's important that you get the overriding theme here. There are four references in this one passage to not working. How serious was God about you understanding the atonement would not be based on your effort? No, I'm asking you. How serious was God about you understanding that the atonement would not be based on your effort? This is also why in, in Genesis 15, when, when uh, Abraham sees a vision of the Word of God... And God reaffirms a covenant with him. We, we see Abraham put to sleep while God is walking through the pieces of the covenant. It is not your effort ever that saves you, but how often are you fighting against the slime, the mud, and the mire trying to get yourself free? You can't. You can't. What happens to you when you fight to get yourself free of mud and mire? You sink deeper in it. You get more and more discouraged. So what are we saying? Sin that grace abounds? Listen to me. Hell no. We're not saying that. We're saying you're going to have to die to it. You, you, you're going to have to give up all self-direction. You're going to have to learn to deny your instinct. Four references to no work. Three references to denying yourself. Four and three. The perfect atonement would be the perfect mixture of you refusing to work to save yourself, but working your butt off to deny your own instincts so that you could follow the Lord. Amen. That is how atonement is made for human beings. We have to deny our own fleshly impulse. It has to be crucified, and you have to trust the Lord to give you the work that you're supposed to be doing. None of your own. Now, Proverbs 16.6 said, Through love and faithfulness sin is atoned for. Through love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness. Picking up on those two things. Listen to this familiar scripture. It's John 
Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. Is that denial? You, you hear it? How do you show love? Well, you have to deny yourself. What was God asking for on the Day of Atonement? He's saying, lay down your life for me. I want you to be not just a worshiper, not just a child in Israel. I want you to be a son, a friend, a close companion. You're going to have to lay down your life. He, he was so serious about it that he put on flesh and literally showed us how to lay down a life. He did it for us. Now, the common teaching is that because he did it, you don't have to. Can I tell you how wrong that is? Because he did it, you have to. He showed you how to do it. You know what love is? Love is to deny your own impulse, your own wants, your own ambitions, your own desires in favor of God who is closer to you than your closest friend. Oh, come on now. Secondly, love and faithfulness. John 6, 29. John 6, 29, Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. Now, on a Sabbath, you're not allowed to do your own work, but whose work are you supposed to be doing? His work. In fact, He says, you can't do any work. Don't do any work at all. Anybody who does work, you're going to be cut off from the people. Then He gives them a list of stuff to do. I mean, have you ever noticed that? It's a lot of work, friends. You remember last year when we brought those two goats in here? Who, who did I task to carry them out? Yeah, you take on the ram, you're going to get the horns. Those little 150-pound goats put these guys to the test. It's a lot of work to bring sacrifices. But it was the work of God. See, what we work to do is be sacrificial. What we work to do is make sure we're only doing what the Lord says. People misunderstand this. They say that we teach a gospel of works. Okay. My gospel works and so I work. Absolutely I do. But I'm not saved by works. Never have been and neither can you be. In fact, they just complicate things, don't they? You know, you just think for a moment what the most noble thing you could do is. Just anybody, you, you got it? Did it come in your head yet? It's idolatrous if God didn't tell you to do it. So whether you were cutting your grandma's grass or you were giving bone marrow to a leukemia patient or, you know, providing for orphans in Africa, if God did not tell you to do it, your very best is a minstrel rag to him. Do you follow me? And yet, no matter how ignoble the task seems... If you do the thing that he told you to do, like the little worm went and ate the bush that was shading Jonah, well, that, that is beautiful. That's not idolatrous. It's the work of God because it was directed by God. Oh, saints, on the day after atonement, you know what you ought to be doing with your planner? You ought to be writing down the things you know for sure he told you to do. The things that you know for sure, you ought to be eliminating anything that he has not spoken to you because it's not important. And on the Day of Atonement, you lost your life and you picked up His life in you. Come on now. The day after. 
Psalm 85, we open the service singing today. I loved this. Psalm 85, verse 7. Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Does that sound like the Older Testament teaches salvation by works? A grant? You don't have to work. <laughs> Only for the federal government do you have to work for a grant. They make the application for the grant so difficult that that is work. But the word grant means gift. Gift us your salvation, Lord. Bestow it upon us. Bless us with it. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to His people, His saints, but let them not return to their folly. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. You trusting the Lord enough to deny your own impulses, to put aside whatever work you wanted to do and do only what He says, that is faithfulness. That's real trust in Him. Put it back in the Red Sea. How hard was it not to pick up your sword? I mean, the chariots are coming. You're probably going to die, but at least you could do is take a few of them with you, right? Except God didn't let them do that. Their grand battle plan was to march into a sea. And then when he split it, which, my God, the, even Cecil B. DeMille's film made that look beautiful way back when. When he split it, the grand plan of salvation was to walk out into the middle of that with walls of water on your right and left. And that was also the instrument of destruction for the Egyptians. So how do you feel if you're the grandma at the back of the pack? Walking, you know, like your grandson's 10 paces ahead of you and you're the last Israelite out of the sea. You know, you probably felt like a spider hanging on a web over hell. At any moment, that water is about to come crashing down and kill every living soul. And you escaped with sea breeze on the back of your neck. You follow me? How grateful would you be? You know, maybe sometimes we feel too far at the front of the line. When the reality is we were all in the last position, weren't we? Oh, man. Self-denial and setting aside your work for the work and call of God are essential to entering the kingdom. Amen. I'm going to leave you with an analogy and then we're going to go through some scriptures. But this is one that Houston and Louisiana, we ought to be able to feel. In Puerto Rico right now, they ought to be able to feel this. Prior to the floodwaters coming, you hear the warning and you start sandbagging your house, huh? You put boards on the windows. You're doing everything a responsible man would do to prepare for the flood. Even while the rain is falling and the waters are rising, you're working to preserve all you can. How many of you went to houses and put couches on blocks and moved things upstairs? I know all of us did, right? When the waters breach your home and they submerge your entire living area, you realize that there's nothing that you can do except trust in the Lord's love and faithfulness and believe that you're going to survive it. See, that is kind of the situation for the Day of Atonement. The waters are rising as you're becoming more and more conscious of your sin. And you're realizing you want at first to fix it. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start doing it. Then you realize that it's hopelessly above your head. You know, it's like the man that, own, uh, that, that owes a billion dollars. 
If I owe you $10, I might work to pay it back. But if it's a billion, I'm just going to have to shake your hand and say, I'm sorry. Right? Because it's, it's hopelessly beyond your ability to repay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are the floodwaters rising in your life? Ezra felt those floodwaters. Turn with me to Ezra 9. Ezra 9 and verse 5. Say there when you're there. Come on, church, are you hearing me today? Yes. Ezra 9 and verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my <clears throat> self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. All of his self-effort brought him only to one conclusion. He was hopelessly drowning in guilt. That's incredible, isn't it? Prior to the Day of Atonement, you may feel the floodwaters rising. But in the Atonement, you realize that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. And you're going to have to appeal to God's faithfulness and His love. What a freeing moment that is. See, while you're working at it, you're working and failing. While you're striving for it, you're falling on your face. In the moment that you realize that that is hopeless and your only hope is to trust in His every word to you. The ability to deny your own desires and, and work and cling to whatever He tells you next. That's very free. You did have to save your whole house and all the furniture in it. You did have to protect all of your family. You did have to preserve everything. But now, all of a sudden, only one thing matters. The next thing that he says. Man, that's a very freeing, simplified life, isn't it? What should the day after atonement look like? It should look like the day after the flood. You have nothing. You are nothing. There's no hope for any restoration except the next thing that he tells you to do. And all your hopes are hung on that. Come on, somebody say amen in the house of God. We have reason for hope as these floodwaters are rising around us, don't we? Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. See, God decided to save you and He knew the waters were still coming. He knew that you were still going to be a big, hot mess. And He loved you anyway. Come on, saints, that's good news. Let's not forget that the Lord is above our problems. He's not dragged down by our sin and our failing. You're dragged down by it, but He's above it so He can help you. He can reach down to raise you up. In fact, that's where He found you, was at the bottom of the barrel. Psalm 29.10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as King forever. The Lord gives strength to His people. The Lord blesses His people with peace. He is above your situation. He's able to help you out of it. He's able to help you through it. It has not escaped His notice. 
The day after atonement, you ought to know how true that is because he just saved your very soul. How much more is he able to fulfill his word in your life? You're just discouraged with the pace. Isn't that true? Like, oh, Lord, I I know that at the last day you'll raise him. You know, we're just discouraged with the pace. But do you know that that pace is building a certain kind of character in you? Before we get to that, I have this thing about law prophets' writings. So I wanted to share something with you from the law again. Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Where did you find the Spirit of God? He's hovering over judgment waters. He's hovering over the rising flood. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness He called night. There was evening and there was morning. The first day. Look at your neighbor and say, on day one? On day one, He was fixing the floodwaters of sin. Now, not just day one of the creation, day one of your walk with Him. The day after the day of atonement, the day after the flood, is the day after He fixed your last problem. What makes you think He's not going to help you with the next one? Come on, saints, it's time to man up, get filled with the Holy Ghost, and face your problem with some courage. He's been doing this since day one. We're a ministry that values work that is produced by faith. But we must never confuse that with work as a substitute for faith. Denying yourself and refraining from work is how we respond to the Lord's love and faithfulness. We deny ourselves because we love Him. We don't do the work that we want to do. We do the work that He calls us to do because we want to be faithful to Him. Why do we want to love and be faithful to Him? Because He first loved and was faithful to us. Oh man, we're getting a chance, aren't we? Turn with me to Mark. In chapter 8, in verse 31, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. How's that for self-denial? Is that the kind of work that you would choose? To be rejected and suffer? Anybody, is that your career path? Right? Some of you in here recently changed jobs. Others of you are at ages in school. You have to choose your major. Any of you choosing your major by what will cause you to suffer the most? Be rejected the most? The king of glory is choosing this path. Chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What is Peter so offended at? He doesn't like the denial of self. I mean, Jesus is supposed to be exalted as a king. Not spit on. Not crucified. Jesus, is, his work is supposed to be to crush the Romans, to bring in a millennial reign, not, not die, not sacrifice. But it's through love and faithfulness that sin is atoned for. And love is self-denial. And faithfulness is setting aside your work for God's work. 
Do you hear how those things are related? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Men don't want to deny self. They don't want to take up the work of God. In fact, they want a selfish work that they can call God's that is theirs. You don't believe me? Drive in front of most churches. Whose name's on the sign? The steeple is a giant, obelisk-type monument to their own idolatry. And what are they proudest of? They got there first. We were the first to poison this well. We were the first to get here and plant genetically altered seed. We were the first to get here and do that. You know, we ought to be the first to want to deny ourselves. The first to build a work that is only in the Lord's name and nothing is in it for you. Turns out it's easier to talk about those things than do them. The very act of love and faithfulness that was to atone for Peter was offensive to him because it involved self-denial and refraining from saving acts. It was actually sacrificialized. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come... What are the next two words? If anyone would come... How far after him? The next day? 2,000 years? What is the path to come after him? He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Do you hear what we're being called to? We're being called to set aside our own impulses, our own ambitions, our own feelings as to what are right. We're being called to set aside whatever you wanted to work on and do the work that is believing on Him. That's what we're called to. Every Christian is there. How ought you to feel on the day after the Day of Atonement? You ought to feel like Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation 12.10 says. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ. Before we get to this other part, now salvation has come? Wow. See, one real problem is you all know when your birthdays are, right? You know when you came into the world. But you think you were saved in 1980. And because you were saved in 1980, that was an event way back then, but you celebrate your natural birth every year. See, the Day of Atonement was an annual reminder that it's the Lord's love and faithfulness, and He made you right again, 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 and and He's going to keep doing it if you'll keep trusting Him. See, you remember the day that you were born again and again and again, but you don't remember how you were born again, again and again. Saints, the day after the Day of Atonement, we ought to be on cloud nine. The Lord has fixed every problem for you. You can't do any work to fix not one problem. The house is already flooded. And He's given you another house, a brand new one that is the house of God. And now He's saying, the way that you live in this house is you only do what I tell you to do. You only say what I tell you to say. And you ought to feel so free to not have to maintain all of that stuff. 
so free to not have to go and keep score with everything, to not have to agonize about how it will work out. You already burned your house down. Now you live in the Lord's house. Are you hearing me? Our last scripture. Well, I'd like to finish Revelation 12. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Do you hear the denial and the ceasing from their work? You express your love and faithfulness to the one who's atoned for you by denying yourself and moving forward doing only His work. How is the day after the flood? It's like the day after atonement. You don't have anything except the next thing that He's giving you. And that's all you need. Come on, saints. That's beautiful. Romans 5 is where we end. And Matthew, you are to make your way here. Saints, Romans 5 is where we're living. So it's where we're going to end the message. Therefore, are you there? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. He doesn't say, therefore, we will be. What does he say? This is the day after the day of atonement. It's the day after the flood. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Have you been justified through faith this morning? Are you trusting in Him and no other thing? Have you crucified self, laid down your work, and now you live for the will of God? And before you shout yes, don't you lie in the house of God, you'd be guilty of two sins. Am I talking to you, Gabriel? You hearing me? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. What do you stand in? You stand in the house given to you. You stand in the grace of God that you never could have earned, but it was just given to you. And we rejoice in the hope of glory. What are you rejoicing in? hope. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. Why are you having to wait on things? Why are you having to struggle for things? Because the way God develops you is through perseverance. It develops character in you. And the thing that this all finishes in is hope. Why do you have hope? Because what position were you in when He saved you? Better or worse than now? See, you were worse off. If He saved you when you were worse off, what makes you think He's going to stop helping you now? Oh, man. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died 
for the ungodly. Sin is atoned for through love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness. And he did that for you when you were the most unlovable and the least faithful. If you are being made to endure a trial, and who's not? Is there anybody here trial-free today? If you're being made to endure a trial, it's because he loves you enough to allow perseverance to exist in your life so that character can be developed. Can I tell you knowledge comes faster than character? Can I tell you that you can outline salvation on a board a lot faster than you can walk it out? Character ends up in hope. So let me ask you, are you ready to show some character today? Are you ready to show some character today? Character hopes in every situation because it remembers what you've already been delivered from. Character is hope in the darkest situation, a hope that actually controls your action. Are you hearing me? Character is what you do during your most difficult times because you have hope that others don't have. This morning, I want to leave you with hope. It's the day after the Day of Atonement. You ought never have been more right with God than you are right now. Things ought never be better for you spiritually than you are this moment. And what you're supposed to display to the whole world now is this hope that you have. Can I tell you, nobody will ever walk up to you and ask you about your hope while you're frowning. Nobody will ever walk up to you and ask you about your hope while you're pissed off and think God's not coming through for you. Nobody will ever do that. But when they see people that are in the midst of trial that are not beaten by those trials but have an overwhelming hope, the whole world will want what you have. He'll be parading you around the desert for every nation to see. Could you stand to your feet?